0: few weeks, I have absolutely loved uh, what Mark's been preaching. And that doesn't mean that I haven't loved everything he's preached all the way along. But for the last few weeks, I never get tired of gospel message. I know some people think, well, you know, you got to dig deeper. You got to get more complicated. You got to unravel the mysteries of of God. You've got to understand, you know, ancient scriptures. You've got to understand the language and what was going on and I just, you know what, I, I could spend every single week just focused on the gospel, just the good news that was brought forward for us. And so uh, when, you know, Mark's been teaching a lot of kind of very simple constructs for us, but things that we often get wrong because we just misunderstand God's will in all of this. And we so often think to ourselves, you know, uh, this, uh, you know everything that goes on with the gospel, it's just, uh, it's just this plan. It's just the way it had to be, and it isn't. It's the way God chose to rescue us from ourselves. And so how can we not be thankful, and how can we not just enjoy over and over again digging into the good news? And that's what we're going to do tonight, as I I don't think that's a surprise that uh, on an Easter weekend we're going to talk about what God did for us. But uh, I've really been enjoying, and we've had uh, had a diagram that Mark's been using for the last few weeks, and uh, I love it. I love this idea of a category change, that, you know, we're born into a sinful life, but we don't have to stay there. It's not about how hard we worked for these, uh, for these high points and how low we fall during these low points. It's simply an understanding that God chose us to move from sinner to saint if all we have to do is just accept that. And what that means for us now, knowing that you know sinner, if you're, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, sinner is in your past, and you're not going back. You can't go back. That's the old you. There's a new you. And that new you was brought, uh, was brought about through the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so I love how he also talked last week about this word sinner and how it's, it's not really a word they would have used back in the day. It's kind of a special word that was kind of created to talk about how we fall short with God. And, and uh, I always, I always um, enjoy uh, uh, Andy Stanley's teaching on, on, this, on, on what sin is because he says we live in a society where we would much rather call ourselves mistakers. We'd much rather be a people who just make mistakes. And we, we, we tend to hear that. If you hear, you know, somebody apologizing, somebody making a public apology, especially, you'll hear things like, you know, nobody's perfect. And I may, I may have miscalculated. I, I, I exhibited some poor judgment. Or maybe I've made an error. You know, we say things like, we were careless. We should have been more thoughtful. We should have been more careful. And if you're young enough, you might just say, my bad. But there are all ways of getting around this idea that there is such a thing as sin. And, you know, uh, I always, I always like the way Andy talks about how, you know, a mistake is something that your kid makes on a math test. There's a different category. He said, we, didn't, we weren't born into the life of a bunch of mistakers. He said, we were born into this difficult position of being a sinner. And, and it's important we understand the difference because a mistake you can fix. A mistake can be edited. A mistake can be made Right. I always uh, like to tell this story because I kind of think it makes Candace sound uh, in a worse light than I do. So I I know I've shared this before, but a few years back we were doing, you know, I do the taxes for for both of us. And uh, I kind of made a mistake. I did not include all of her income. Uh, I don't know if you have a health care plan, but it's complicated. But I missed something. And, uh, And of course, they don't know that I missed something they know that Candace missed something because she submits her taxes and they're like, oh, nice try. And so we got this letter from the CRA and the CRAs, they couldn't have been nicer about it, but they said, um, you, you've made a mistake. You've done something wrong. And then they went ahead and corrected it. And they said, now what you need to do is resubmit with this correction. And it's easy because if you make a mistake, it's kind of not your fault. It's kind of just something you did by accident. You can correct it. You can move on. And you know, but that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit for everything, especially when you think about people who plan ahead to make mistakes. What is that? Somebody, who, somebody who's, you know, says it was a mistake. They get caught in a, in a situation. Think of a politician who maybe got caught in a situation and they say, I made a mistake. And then you realize what was involved in that mistake. You know, fake business trips, hotel reservations. Like, how can you call that a mistake? It's something bigger. And I bet you if you asked that person's spouse, they would say, you know what? That's not a mistake. That's something bigger. I bet if you think about your biggest regret in your life right now, I bet the word mistake doesn't quite cover it. It's not quite enough to explain what that is. And that's why we have a proper word, a more appropriate word. That's why we have this word sin. And really what makes it worse than all of that is that we're all repeat offenders that we simply don't learn from our mistakes, and we don't simply learn from our sin. We often live them out over and over again, and that's why it matters, you see. It matters that if you're a mistaker, because if you're a mistaker, you don't need to be forgiven. You just need to correct your mistake. But if you're a sinner, there's a need for forgiveness. And, uh, you know, I used to think that it was kind of unfair. I I always thought it was kind of unfair that Jesus would raise the standard so high that none of us could reach it. And I always thought, like, why would he do that? Why would God make it so hard for us to be holy in his sight? Why doesn't he just make it a little bit easier? And and when you read about Jesus, he came and he moved the standard even higher. So if you thought you were figuring out Old Testament law, Jesus came along. And, for example, in Matthew 5, he talks about adultery. And he says, you all know it's wrong. It's a sin to commit adultery. And everybody in the room would have nodded their heads and said, yeah, of course, of course. And then Jesus looked at them and said, you know what, if you think about it, if you you even just lust after another woman, then you've already committed adultery. And they all said, no, that's, come on, no, like, that's not it. We have the law. The law tells us what we can and can't do. But Jesus came along and he just raised that bar even higher. And I used to think it was unfair. I used to think, why, why? Why not just give us something that if we work really hard at, we can figure it on our own? And the fact is that we're actually quite lucky that he made that standard so high for us. And here's the reason. Because if, if it's simply a mistake, if it's something that you can fix, if it's something that you can earn, then you don't need forgiveness. And you can just go on living your own life, doing your own thing. You don't need God. God's an option for you, but you don't need, you don't need God in your life. And so being labeled a sinner is something that nobody wants, but it's actually necessary for us to have a restored relationship with our Savior. And that's such a key idea. And and, and we also need to understand that the, the second part of that idea is that Jesus didn't come to condemn. He didn't come to point a finger and say, I knew you couldn't do it. I knew you wouldn't be able to figure this out. Instead, Jesus came to forgive. And, and uh, we'll look at another story, John 8, and we're just going to do this real quick, so we're not going to put a lot of scripture up here. But John 8, you may know this is the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And the, and the Pharisees, they were all ready to stone this woman. They wanted her to be punished. They wanted her to be condemned. And she was caught in the act. She had no possible defense, and she doesn't even try. She doesn't even try to explain what happened. She was guilty, and she knew it. And you may think to yourself, wow, there's been a lot of adultery talk already in our Easter service. So I want you just to erase that and put in your own example. I love how Mark, when he had that picture up, he, he referred to something as that sin. I think we all have that sin, something in our lives that just seems to be harder to deal with than a lot of other things. So in, in, insert your own, just close your eyes for a second, just insert your own thought in there. What is it that you struggle with? Maybe it's not adultery, but it's still, it still, makes, it's still the same story. You see, they're enticing Jesus to act just like they do. They want him to condemn her so they can point to Jesus and say, he's just like us. He's nothing special. And in, in John uh, chapter 8, verse 7, the second half, it says this, if, if any of you, this is Jesus speaking to the crowd, they've got the stones ready to go. They are ready to move on this. And Jesus simply says this, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. See, he didn't, uh, he didn't downplay her sin. He didn't declare that she wasn't guilty. He didn't offer a defense for her behavior. He simply turned it around and said, we're all in this category. Jesus wasn't, but he said to those people, we're all, you're all in this category. He didn't simply say, you know what, she made, a, she made a mistake. He called it what it was. And of course, those standing there, thinking about it, averting their eyes, Dropping those stones, eventually walking away. And after they did, Jesus is left alone with this woman. After this huge crowd just dissipates, and in verse 10, it, starts, it, it ends this way. It says, women, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she replied. And then these are the words of Jesus. Then neither do I condemn you. Condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave this life of sin. He is is in a position where he is completely right to condemn her. She broke the law, but he refused to. He refused to because his mission statement was not to condemn and condemn as many as possible and leave everybody feeling like they just could not meet that. He raised the bar so that we would come to an understanding of why we need a Savior. And if you're kind of new to church or new to church services, and you're just you, know, we say this over and over again that we've been saved. And, and the odd, odd, obvious question is, saved from what? And what we know is we're saved from a life of sin. We're raised from that category of sinner into the category of saint, and that comes only, only through Jesus and what He did for us. You know, Jesus declared a condemned woman to be uncondemned. And it seems a bit like a contradiction. It seems like it doesn't make a lot of sense. But really what it is is simply this. He removed that sin from her account. It was just gone. And if it's gone, how, what can she be condemned for? What is there for her to be condemned for? And it's true for you and it's true for me. And it's true as, as much true now as it was 2,000 years ago. And... We kind, of, we, we kind of understand, we kind of feel for this woman. I, I think many of us kind of feel like, I'm glad that happened. But there's another story, I think a more amazing story, and it takes place in Luke. And this is at the moment of Jesus' crucifixion. This is at the foot of the cross. And we know that Jesus was crucified with two other men, two other men who are just referred to as criminals. But we also have to understand that that crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. We don't know what they did, but we know it was bad. And we're just going to read this. It's a long section, but I don't want to skip over it. So uh, we're going to read from Luke 23, starting in verse 32. It says this, Two others, both criminals, were led out to be executed with him. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one to his right and one to his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for their clothes by throwing dice. And the crowd watched, and the leaders scoffed. He saved others, they said. Let him save himself, if he is really God's Messiah, if he's really the chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, too, by offering him a drink of sour wine. And they, and they called out to him, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And they fastened a sign that above him that simply said these words, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffed. So you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too. And while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. And then he said, he looked to Jesus and he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's no way. That's not fair. Am I the only one who thinks that? That's crazy. He just has to say those words on the cross, and just like that, he's good? Shouldn't he have to kind of demonstrate some remorse? Shouldn't he have to maybe make reparations in some way? Shouldn't he have to figure out a way to try to make this right? It's not what happened. What happened, as hard as it is to believe, he wasn't asked to earn it or prove it or show it. He simply asked for forgiveness. That's what he's asking for here. And and he was forgiven, and he's restored. And he says, later today, you and I are going to be together in paradise. And there's something in us that seems, you know, that doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair. But here's the thing. If life were fair, we'd all get treated the way we treat others. And if life were fair, you know what? We'd all get paid what we're worth. And if life were fair, we'd get exactly what we deserve. And so I'm very, very happy that life isn't fair because God has decided to not have us get exactly what we deserve. You know what? What makes me very, very happy is is that through Jesus, I, and through Jesus, you can get exactly what we don't deserve. And that's what undeserved favor is. That's what we call grace. We don't deserve it, but we're getting it anyway. And last week, Mark talked about the last words that Jesus spoke on that cross when he said, it is finished. And he talked about how that's an accounting term. This word, these words he said, it is finished, is an accounting term. And it means paid in full. And Paul picks up on this idea. This isn't something we've discovered, you know, years later, studying the Bible. Paul knew this right away because Paul wrote this in Colossians 2, verse 14. He says, having canceled, this talking about Jesus, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. You see, it's undeserved and it's unearned, but it's been removed. Our indebtedness is no longer there. He he says this just a few verses before in Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. It says, So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And there's two things here. This word continue. It's an important word, because what he's saying is, I want you to continue how you started. And the way they started was to be saved through faith. And what he's really saying here by continue is don't now revert back to this idea of earning it. Don't now revert back to this idea that you have to make it right. He says, you began, you you were saved in the beginning because of your faith. Now continue to be saved by your faith. Don't bring good deeds. Don't bring good works. Don't bring, bring these things to the table because it's never been about that. And then he says at the end of that, he says, because you're overflowing with thankfulness. And that's an interesting expression because the expression isn't thank me, it's thank you. We, we thank people when they've done something for us. If we earn our salvation because we say the right things, we do the right things, we go to church, we give money to the church, we, we're kind, we try not to drink, we try not to smoke, we try not to swear, and we just kind of live our lives. We think we're somehow earning something. But Paul reminded us there that you don't go there. Stay where you began. You were saved by faith. So now live in faith. Because if you have something to be thankful for, it's because somebody's done something for you. We don't say thank me when we're proud of ourselves. We thank others for what they've done. You know, he says this in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace, Paul says this, sorry. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is the reason Faith is the mechanism. And this is not for, from yourselves. It is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. It's not about your performance. It's about our father-to-child father relationship with the God of all creation, that he looks at, looks at us as his children. And in doing so, he, he simply gives it to us as a gift. He says, I want to spend eternity with you, but we need a plan. We need a way to make that happen, and so that's that's why we understand that Jesus did what He did, because He understands that we needed a plan. We had to be saved. We all know this verse, John three sixteen. Can you guys read it for me? You've heard this one. For God so loved the world. We you know that one, right? It's probably the most commonly known verse, at least the most commonly known uh, reference. You very rarely go to a sporting event, you know, and see somebody with a Leviticus nine three sign, and you're like looking it up, and it's like, it's, it's probably something to do with goats, right? It's, we know that verse because it's this key idea. It's this key idea that simply says this, that God did it because of love, and God did it for you. You know, Jesus went on to explain that he was that son, the son, of, the son of God mentioned in that verse, over the next few years, he talked about how he was that son. He was the reason. He was the way. And when the Pharisees heard that, you see, before they'd been trying to trick Jesus, they'd been trying to discredit Jesus, they'd been trying to embarrass him or marginalize him. But when he said this, when they understood that he was claiming to be the Son of God, that's when they knew they needed to kill him, that he couldn't be managed. He had to be removed. And so while they plotted and while they planned, Jesus taught and Jesus spoke the truth and Jesus healed the sick and he restored the brokenhearted and he even raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. And despite all of this, we know that Jesus was unfairly betrayed, unfairly arrested, unfairly convicted, unfairly mocked and unfairly crucified. And that in that moment, when Jesus died on that cross, so did his movement. The future of Christianity was done. The church did not continue. The gathering ended that day. Because when Jesus died, no one believed he was who he said he was. No one continued to believe. When he died, the the burgeoning church, the the, the burgeoning movement died with him. And how do we know that? We know that because of this. On that moment when Jesus left the tomb, when he stepped out of darkness into the light, he did it alone. There was no press conference held. There was no marching bands. There was no crowd. There wasn't even a small gathering of disciples who came to witness that amazing moment when he would do what he said he was going to do. He said, I'll be back in three days. And they didn't believe him. There wasn't even a, you know, a, a small vigil taking place. There wasn't even a bunch of teenagers with their cell phones recording it. He was alone when he left that tomb. But we know that he wasn't alone for long because we know there was a moment, just a few, a few minutes, a few hours away, where someone would come. Someone would come to anoint him. Someone would come to show their respect. Someone would come just to, just to kneel down and weep and, uh, and, and grieve for Jesus. And that someone was Mary Magdalene. We don't know exactly what she thought. We don't know exactly what she said. But I like to think it was something like this.
1: It was quiet when we approached the tomb. Days before, there was noise wherever we went. Crowds cheering, sometimes yelling. But now in front of his tomb... I had gathered all my spices and oils, intending to anoint the body. But when I got there, he was gone. Jesus changed my life. Ever since the day that I met him in Galilee, he rescued me. And I followed him ever since. All the way to his death. But there was the tomb. And it was empty. My heart broke into a thousand pieces. I turned and there was a gardener. And I asked him if he knew where they had taken Jesus' body. But I recognized. It was my Lord. He taught us that his sheep would recognize his voice and I knew him. I knew him the minute he said my name. I dropped to my knees. What else could I do but cling to him? I never wanted to let him out of my sight. But no, he had different plans for me. He wanted me to let the others know about the good news. I ran as fast as my legs would carry me, was shouting like an excited child. <laughs> he did it! He did it! <laughs> Come to an anoint a dead man. And I left with proof that he is the overcomer of everything. I, all of us, can never beat fear, sorrow, sin, definitely not death. Death. He beat death. Who do I say that he is? I know who he is. Oh, I know who he is. He said that he would rise. He most certainly is risen. He is the Savior. He is. He is the one true God. <laughs> oh, oh.
0: <Jesus. laughs> what a moment that must have been. What a moment that must have been to standing there and to see Jesus and to know it was true. No one believed it was true. They would have been waiting for him. They would have been getting ready for his big triumphal exit from the tomb. They would have been talking about it. They would have been gloating about what was going to happen. They would have been telling all their friends. They would have been telling those Pharisees, boy, you guys screwed up. He's coming back. He's going to be back in three days, and you guys are going to really, really look foolish. And so with the resurrection of Jesus, we actually saw the resurrection of belief. And you could hear it in her voice. And I know that's not her, but you could hear it in her voice, what it meant to see Jesus again. You see, before that, it was just over. It was over. The disciples were not looking for Jesus, they were looking for a way out of town. They were not looking to see if he was coming back. Some of them were, were putting out resumes and job applications. Some of them returned to fishing, thinking the wild ride was over. And that is so different. You know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, those who believed in what he believed in picked up the mantle and carried it forward. When Muhammad died, those who believe in Islam, they picked up the mantle and they moved forward. When Jesus died, everyone left. It wasn't the death of Jesus That is not the reason why we're here today. It is the resurrection of Jesus why we are here today. That is what makes a difference in our lives, and that is why the gospel message is so powerful. It is so meaningful, and it is something that we cannot gloss over. We can't simply say, I know that information. I know that this is true. We have to understand what it means for us what it means to have a resurrected Savior who did more than just pay the price for our sins, did more than just offer us salvation, but he offered us eternal life. Why? Because he wants to spend eternity with you. He doesn't want to have all of eternity spent with you, not there. It matters to him. That's why he did what he did. Jesus didn't stay dead. But by defeating death, he can offer us life you know, Lorenz Eifert, and I don't even know who that is except to say he's a, he's a pastor from back in the day. He said this, the dying Jesus is the evidence of God's anger and wrath towards sin. But the living, the resurrected Jesus is the proof of God's love and his forgiveness. And I don't know for, for you, but I can tell you for me, and I think it's true for many people watching this in the room now, whenever now might be, I, I think it might be true say might it is true for me that i look back at that moment when i truly believe when i truly understood what god had done for me and it is the most life changing moment of my life i should probably say it's the day i got married or when my daughters were born it was not it was the moment when i truly understood what god had done when it went from being information being shared in a church to revelation in my heart that's the difference in my life. And I, I say to you now that regardless of where you are in that process, maybe right now you're sitting here and you're thinking, well, I know this and I've done this. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't know what to make of all of this. And I even like the idea that I don't know what, what that means anymore to say what if you're sitting here or if you're watching this now. I don't know what now is. Somebody three Easter's from now might come across this video and watch it. You might be doing this later in the week. You might be doing Easter money. I don't know when. But I do know this, that I would never trade any moment of my life for that moment when I came to understand who Jesus was and what he did for me. And I would echo the words of Mary Magdalene in that moment and simply say, who do I say Jesus is? That's not a question for me. I know who Jesus is. I know what he did for me. But, you know, if if you're, if you're kind of... Uh, on the fence about all of this, and you're like, I don't know what to think. I'm not sure how I feel. Let me just ask you this. Do you know that you're a, more than a mistaker? You know that, that since birth you have been broken and that you can't be corrected. You have to be forgiven. And do you, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he died to pay your debt? When he said it is finished, he was referring to you. Do you believe that to be true? And if you do, do you trust? Will you put your trust in him and say, he's better at running my life than I am. He knows what he's doing, and I'm going to put my trust, I'm going to put my hope, I'm going to put my faith in the Savior who did that for me. And if you are, then I would suggest to you that there is no time like the present for you to just invite Jesus into your heart. And I mean, that's kind of a, a Sunday school way to say it, but it just means asking. It's you choosing to say to Jesus, I want this grace you offer. I want to move from the sinner category to the saint category. I want that in my life because here's the thing. Although you'll ask, I can tell you the answer already, that if you ask God, he will, he will do more than you could ever imagine. He will, he will not only forgive you. He will not only make you an adopted son or an adopted daughter, but he will put into, play, put into place a plan that will allow you to spend eternity with him. I can't encourage you enough to just take some time this Easter, even if you are are someone who's been coming to church for a long time and think, I know this stuff, I know this stuff. I'll tell you right now, I spent 20 years knowing this stuff before I really understood this stuff. And so I just invite you, we're going to pray in a second here, I just invite you to pray. Just open your heart up to God. Let God speak to you in this moment. I, I can just promise you it's not something you would ever, ever regret. Let's pray. Lord, just so thankful. So thankful. And I don't, I don't know how to put into words what it means. What would it mean for someone to give their life for you? How overwhelmed would you be? How more overwhelmed would you be if it's someone you've, you don't even know? God did this before we were reconnected with him. We don't even know him, and he did this for us. How amazed would you be at that? How amazed would it be if you know that it was literally the best person who ever walked on the planet who made that choice to sacrifice himself for you? How much more would it amaze you to realize that that man was God, that Jesus, the Son of God, who is truly God, made that choice? He said, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die so that you might live. We don't have words. I, maybe it's good that we don't have words, that we just let the, the, the power of that statement rest on us for a minute. The God of all creation loves you, not us, you, so much. He loves you so much that he would sacrifice his son and that he would just put into place this plan. That's so difficult for us to understand, but he would do it because he is desperate to reconnect with you. He's desperate to reconnect with you tonight. So thankful, Jesus. So thankful for you. So thankful that you rose again. Your your church might have died that day and stayed dead, but as you were resurrected, your church was resurrected. The people who follow you are resurrected, and it's still happening
1: today. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much.
0: I didn't want to do any discussion questions tonight. Don't tell Mark we're not doing any discussion questions. I just want I just want the weight of understanding what's been done for you, just to just to just to play with you for a little bit, just to just to kind of realize. And and really, what I I felt like I don't know. Easter brings out the the hymn in me. That, that sounded really strange. The H Y M N in me. I, I don't know about you, but around Easter I start humming old hymns. I don't even know when the last time I heard some of them were. And it just got to me today. It's like. I'm not going to sing. Some of you just look terrified right now. I'm not going to sing a hymn, but I just, you know what I'd like to do? I'd, l- I'd like to do a doxology. I'd like to close with a doxology, and that's a very old-fashioned word. And basically, it was just based on this idea that it's a statement of glory, that what, what the early church would do is they would do a statement of glory. When they would end their time together, they would, they would send each other out with a statement of glory reminding each other who God is and why we follow who we follow, and this one, this one is actually at the very end of the book of Jude, and the very end of the book of Jude, it's only a one-chapter book, and Jude was written by Jude, who was the brother of Jesus, we believe that, and um, just the last two verses, in, in some older Bibles, you'll see it called a doxology, sometimes you find it called something like final remarks, which is really, really super exciting, but I just wanted to end with a doxology, and it's the last two verses of the book of Jude, and it says this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to, prevent you, uh, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now, and forevermore. Amen.